open my mouth, you know that I am not from California originally, although I do have some fun with Californians regarding my accent when I buy my coffees in Midtown and I frequent various places. I want to bring to you the greetings this morning of our congregation, Emmanuel Baptist Church, right in the heart of the state capital of California. We have not all bowed the knee to Baal in California. Pray for us in California. We bless God for our congregation, for the work the Lord is doing in our city, and we trust that he might yet do across the great state of California. I love California. I make no apologies for that. You can be sure California is coming to a town near you soon. And we bless God for the opportunities we have to serve the Lord Jesus in that great state. So it's great for us to be here. I want to thank Pastor Jim for his kind invitation. My wife and I are really enjoying the fellowship of the saints here, the kind hospitality. And I thoroughly enjoyed my time with the ladies at the conference. I do trust that what we considered was helpful to them. This morning I'd like to turn you to the book of Acts and to the second chapter. We're going to read together a familiar portion of Holy Scripture and we're going to consider what I think are some very familiar truths but important for us in these days to be put in remembrance of these truths. The greatest sermon, I believe, in the history of the church may well have been preached here in Acts chapter 2 by the Apostle Peter. And having declared Jesus Christ to be the Lord, risen from the dead, having died for our sins, I want us to move into the passage in Acts 2 in verse 37. And we'll read all the way to the end of the chapter. So let us hear together the word of God as we find it here in Acts 2. 37 and following. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, the breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we rejoice that we are found this morning before you, singing the praises of your name, exalting the name which is above every name, the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we glory this morning, our God, not in ourselves, but in you, 
the one who has loved us, the one who has given his son for us, the one who has given to us the Holy Spirit, making us alive, we who once were dead in our trespasses and sins. We ask now, our Father, as we turn to your word, that you would come and you would grant to us understanding. We would believe that which you have revealed to us. And in believing, we would be saved. That, O oh, our God, you would be glorified even in the proclamation of your word this morning to the edification of your people and to the saving of those who are yet strangers to your grace. Help the one who preaches. Help those who listen. Change us, O oh God, by the power of your spirit as we believe your word for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Priorities matter. And we all have priorities. We have personal priorities. Some of you young people are prioritizing college in your life right now. Some of you are looking to prioritize work. It may be that you're prioritizing getting married fairly soon. And priorities take first place in our lives. In our families, we all have priorities. For me, one of my priorities is my little grandson and our Isaac Mondays that I enjoy with him. My wife and I prioritize time away in Kentucky to come and enjoy a few days and then fellowship with the saints here. Priorities matter. And priorities matter in the life of the Christian church. And I want to speak to you this morning about this important matter of priorities in the church. What I'm calling spirit-led priorities. What we have in the book of Acts is an account, an historical account, a spirit-inspired account of God's dealings with his new covenant community as a result of our Savior's ascension back to glory and the outpouring of the Spirit and the establishing of that which God was doing now in Christ in the world. And what we have in Acts chapter 2, essentially, is a remarkable, historical, and unique event whereby the Holy Spirit comes in power upon the small bunch of believers to expand their number, to grow them up, and to eventually send them out to fulfill, of course, the great commission that our Savior had given to his apostles at the end of Matthew's gospel. And here in Acts chapter 2, we have a description of how the Holy Spirit led those early believers in their lives together. We have a description here of the work of the Spirit in such a manner in their lives as to aid them to give priority to certain practices, certain disciplines that were going to essentially shape them as the people of God. I'm confident for you as a congregation that these are priorities that you already know about, that you're already aware of. But I want to come to you this morning to remind you of them once again and to have you consider them afresh this morning. Why? Because I am persuaded that there are too many churches who are losing sight of spiritual priorities. And getting drawn away from that which God in Christ 
has given to us as his people for our good, for our benefit, for our edification. And may I add, for our usefulness in the world in which we live. There are those who get drawn away into humanitarian issues. Not that humanitarian issues don't matter. There are those who get drawn away into political issues. Not that political issues should not be addressed. There are those who get drawn away into other social issues. And consequently, I believe, they lose sight of spiritual priorities in their life as a church. Richard Rogers is a famous Puritan. He lived at the time of Elizabeth I. He lived at the time of William Perkins, one of my favorite English writers. He wrote a treatise on helps to be a happy Christian. I like that title because we're all looking, aren't we, to be happy. But when you read that treatise, especially the third one, which I have read in more depth, you discover he writes about certain things that would surprise you in regards to helping you to be happy. He writes about the means of grace. And he draws out the means of grace as he understood them from this passage in Acts chapter 2. And he sets down for us very clearly that which the church should prioritize as the church. Such was the influence of Richard Rogers that the Westminster Divines took up his work and incorporated into that wonderful document, the Westminster Confession of Faith. And of course, such was the Westminster Confession of Faith's greatness that we improved it in 1677. Yet we kept much of Richard Rogers' explanation regarding religious worship. And so your homework this afternoon would be to go home and take your Trinity hymnal and turn up the back of the hymnal and read uh, the chapter on uh, religious worship. Priorities for the church must be known and they must be kept and they must be pursued. And this morning, brothers and sisters, I want us to consider uh, the priorities that the Spirit of God gave to the church in the first century as we find them here in that very well-known text, Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. I want us to consider three truths from this text this morning. Uh, The first will be that we will identify the spiritual priorities. We have to know what they are in order for us to pursue them. So we'll identify the spiritual priorities. Then we'll consider the the attitude that we ought to have towards these priorities as the people of God. And then thirdly and finally, we'll close by considering uh, the benefits that come to us in our lives as a church when we are prioritizing with the right attitude these priorities. 
So let us consider, first of all, the priorities that the Spirit leads us in here in this text. The priorities that the Spirit of God led the early church in. And there are four, and they're very straightforward, and you know them, I'm sure. But let's just walk through it again, and let's consider afresh that which the Spirit of God led the early church in as God was establishing his new covenant community. We see here that they were, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. And the fellowship, and the breaking of bread, and the prayers. What is the apostles' teaching? Or the apostles' doctrine? Well, the apostles' teaching or the apostles' doctrine can be interpreted in two ways. It can be interpreted in the way that they, they gave themselves to sit under the activity of the apostles' teaching. Or they gave themselves to what the apostles were teaching. I don't think it really matters at the end of the day because both of those things go together. The reality is if you're going to be taught the body of instruction that the apostles are giving, you'll need to be there. You'll need to be under that. The reality is that what we have here in the early church is the Spirit of God has converted some 3,000 souls now is the fact that they gave themselves to hear the Word of God. They gave themselves to the apostles' instruction, to that which the apostles had to say to them as now professing believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see, don't we, when we look back even at this early part of the book of Acts, that our Savior, he has spent uh, 40 days with the apostles, teaching them what? Things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Well, I'm pretty confident, I can say with, I think, a measure of authority, that if Jesus has just taught them things pertaining to the kingdom of God, the new economy of God, the, the dawning now of the, the kingdom of God, uh, that, that, that which God has brought by way of fulfillment, that the apostles are going to spend a bit of time instructing, particularly these first century Jewish converts, all about what God is now doing, because the Messiah has come in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they would have been, no doubt, being taught about God and about Christ and about the law and the fulfillment of the law and the place of the law in their lives. Now that the Lord Jesus has come, they would have been taught about the kingdom and the nature of the kingdom and the now of the kingdom and the not yet of the kingdom. Uh, the, the, the church was already asking some of these questions when you actually read these early chapters of the book of Acts. No doubt they were being taught about the nature of faith and repentance. They had already been taught something of that by way of their instruction to be baptized the ministry of the Spirit, the gift of the Spirit, who has now been given to them, and the, the fruit of the Spirit. All of these wonderful truths would have been part of their instruction from the apostles. And as the church gathered regularly to hear the instruction, these new converts were being rooted and grounded in Jesus Christ that they might know who he is, that they might understand what he has done, and that they might live their lives out in the, with the, regards to the implications of all that that brings into their life. And so the apostles' doctrine was a significant priority for the early church. Indeed, we would have to say this, that if a church is not teaching the apostles' doctrine, it's no Christian church at all. We 
as the people of God even 20 centuries later. We are committed to apostolic doctrine. That which was given to the apostles and that which has come down to us through the ages and that which we have in our Holy Bible. But notice then there's a second priority here. Uh, we see, and of course it, it makes sense, that it would be that which is fellowship. This, this word that is used here uh, is a word that can mean, by way, by way of uh, definition, close relationship or association. If you were to do simply a study of this word in your New Testament, you would discover that it speaks very clearly uh, to the whole idea of associating closely with one another. Uh, partnership is the idea that is behind this word in the original language. And what we have here then is the fact that these new believers who believed in Jesus and who are sitting under uh, the teaching of the apostles, they are also a people who now are closely associating together. One of the things I liked when I came into your foyer was to see the original church covenant. Uh, of the church when the Lord was pleased to establish the work here. And I think that we should, in many ways, uh, recover that in, in all churches, that we are a covenant community, that we are committed to one another, that we are closely associating with one another around the truths of the gospel, around the Lord Jesus Christ. What is it that binds us together? What is it that brings us together it's not our interest. I know that some of you don't appreciate the greatest sport in all the world. And that's soccer, by the way. I know that some of us have particular scientific interests. Some of us love history. Uh, uh, there's different socioeconomic dynamics. There's different ethnic realities. But what is it that brings us all together? It's Jesus Christ Amen. and him crucified. In California, I call my congregation a motley crew because we're such a diverse bunch of people. There's no way naturally we would ever come together. But God in grace brings us to his son and unites us together and causes us to partner together, to associate together, to be in one another's lives. And of course, in order to sit under teaching, we must come together. But there's more going on than just simply sitting under teaching here. There's the whole idea of being in one another's lives. And the passage really fleshes it out, doesn't it? As we see what does fellowship look like in the early church? Well, it says they had all things in common. I know when I say that in American context, I'm in trouble. I'm in danger. Not in California. And I've been called a European socialist, so I'm okay with that. Because I believe in sharing. But, but the reality is it's not, it's not promoting that everything you own is mine and everything I own is yours in the sense you can just come to my house and take my furniture, right? But what it is saying is something I do think that cuts across American culture is that we are not to live crassly individualistic lives. We are a covenant community. And... I know this is a really dangerous thing to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. It does take a village. Not in the political sense, but spiritually, to be encouraging one another. The reality is that we're not just a whole bunch of individuals coming to sit on seats to get a data dump. Right? We are 
living stones who are being built together in a holy temple unto the Lord, who must interrelate with one another and be in one another's lives and, and concerned for one another and helping one another and encouraging one another. And we see it here. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Look, I didn't write this. This is the word of God. And this is the challenge of fellowship, of association, of close relationship. And yes, maybe, just maybe, I do need to sell my car to give you some money to help you feed your family. Maybe that's something God would call me to do. Maybe I have three cars and I only need two. Maybe I could get away with one. And I can help the brother or sister in the church who is in partnership with me, who is in fellowship with me, who is associated closely with me because we're both blood-bought brothers and sisters to help them through whatever they may be going through. You see, the heart of all of this, as we saw with the sisters the last couple of days, is that this is all about loving one another, truly loving one another. And here the early church gives us an example to follow. And the reality is that they were in one another's homes. We can clearly see, can't we? There was a lot of hospitality going on. I love to eat food. And I don't know any Reformed Baptists that don't actually. But the reality is that we enjoy fellowship, don't we? By having one another in each other's homes. But I think it's more than just we invite the people we like to our homes for a nice meal and we have a nice barbecue, right? That's a great thing to do and we do it. But it's more than that. It's recognizing that there are those who have in the church and there are those who have not in the church. And that we want to be helping those who have not. And we want to be ministering to them where there's the opportunity to, have a, to make meals for those who maybe have just had a baby, have, suffering with sickness or whatever it may be. We need to be fellowshipping, associating, relating. This is what's going on in the early church. And notice, this is a spirit-led priority. This is not just a, this is not a take it or leave it matter. This is what should characterize our relationships with each other. Fellowship. More than fellowship, we have the breaking of bread. Now, there's a bit of debate amongst the commentators here is that the breaking of bread in reference to the whole issue that is later on in the passage uh, addressed by way of hospitality, or is it the breaking of bread that is the ordinance of the Lord's Supper? I take it as the Lord's Supper. I think what we've got here is the church gathering, uh, again, uh, to be taught all things whatsoever Christ has commanded. And we know that on the night our Lord was betrayed, uh, that he broke bread and he, he, he set apart the cup and he, he spoke of the new covenant and he establishes the Lord's Supper. Uh, and of course, then the church down through the ages uh, continues this one of two ordinances that we have. The other being baptism, which they've already practiced in this passage. And so here uh, we see then that the church gathers to proclaim Christ's death until he comes. This is part and parcel of what it means to be the church. This is part and parcel of what it means to be a covenant community of God's people. That we come to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That we might enjoy that sweet communion with Christ as he peculiarly meets us at the supper. When we come together as the people of God. And it's very interesting, isn't it? That the wisdom of God in the Lord's supper is such that we are to keep short accounts with God and with each other. 
Very, very wise of God, isn't it? Why? Because we leak, you see. We forget. And we, we procrastinate. And we put off addressing offenses uh, that come. And let's be honest. If we're going to have the fellowship that's really advocated here in the church, uh, we're going to have offenses, right? You're going to bring me a meal I just don't like. <laughs> right? And I, I don't want to be unkind and say I, I didn't eat it because I didn't like it. You, get, you can get all prickly about that, right? And then we could have a church split over that, right? Uh, we don't want that. But, but let's be honest. The, the closer we get to one another, the more we fellowship with one another, guess what you're going to see? My weaknesses. You're going to see warts and all. No matter how holy I might think I am, you're going to see that I'm not perfectly like Christ. And so the Lord's Supper is here and it's placed in the life of the church. Not only that we would proclaim Christ until he comes and keep short accounts with God in our hearts, but also that we would discern the body of Christ in 1 Corinthians 11, that we might also keep short accounts with each other. And I don't know your frequency of the Lord's Supper here. We have it once a month at Emmanuel on the first Sunday evening. So next Lord's Day evening we'll have it when I get home. Um, I grew up in a church where we had the Lord's Supper every Lord's Day. I think an argument can be made for that. I don't think it's commanded in Scripture. Uh, but the reality of it all is this. That however frequent we actually have the supper, the issue is the substance of what is actually going on. That we must keep short accounts with God and with one another as we gather so that we might actually be observing the Lord's Supper when we gather, which is Paul's whole issue in 1 Corinthians 11 as he lays it all out and addresses the, the aberrations of the church. And so the church here are, are led to break bread, to, to, to celebrate the ordinances of the church. And then, of course, they are also led to prayers, to prayers. One of the peculiar comforts I get as a pastor is reading that Spurgeon's church had the same problems with regards to the prayer meeting as my congregation have. It's, it's, it's a kind of weird way to be comforted as a pastor, but you realize, well, Wednesday night's a hard night, and especially how we have it set. We've had many discussions about this over the years. There are times, honestly, if you were going to make it to our prayer meeting in downtown Sacramento at 6.30, you will need a helicopter. <laughs> and none of my congregants have helicopters. And even if they did, I'm not going in one. But the reality is that the church is called to be a praying community. Why are we called to be a praying community? Because we are a dependent community. We are utterly dependent upon God. Now, it's true, isn't it, that we don't live that way. We live as though we're really dependent on our bank balance or the church budget or the gifts of the pastors or whatever. But really, we are dependent upon God, brothers and sisters. Without God, we can do nothing, right? And here we see that this, this early uh, season in the life of the church was such that the Spirit of God led them to cry to God, to seek God, to pray to God. They were a praying people, uh, and, and they were aware that they needed to be praying. And uh, Pastor Jim mentioned this in his uh, treatment of First John. Uh, how then ought we to pray? How would we know what we should pray for? I think one of the best ways to learn to pray is simply this. Come to prayer meeting. I grew up in a, a small Baptist church on the east side of Edinburgh. Although I was born in Glasgow, I grew up on the east side of uh, Scotland mainly. And uh, in my late teens, mid-teens, late teens, I used to attend the prayer meeting on a Wednesday night. Uh, and I was terrified to open my mouth in the prayer meeting. Why? Well, because I used to listen to these old saints pleading with God. 
these old saints, male and female, pleading with God for his blessing to come upon the church. Now, the history of that little Baptist church is interesting because during the war, uh, the Second World War, it was the women who kept the church going because the men were all gone. And it's been an interesting observation for me now 30 years away from that church my own my pastor was such a great help to me he's still there his son is one of the elders there my own brother is an elder in that church now Uh, but looking back at the history of that church I can see how God answered the prayers of those old saints many of them who are now in glory and they never lived to see the answer to their prayers I've lived to see it I actually think I'm one of the fruit of that when they would pray for young men to rise up and preach the gospel and to send missionaries to the ends of the earth. Back in the late 1980s, we were praying for God to bring down the Iron Curtain. You know what the Iron Curtain is? You young people might not know this, but it was basically the Eastern Bloc and the whole Soviet uh, Bloc. And we would pray particularly for the nation of Albania, Because Albania was renowned to have declared their president or whatever he was that God was dead. And we would pray particularly for Albania. And there was a radio station in northern Italy that would beam the gospel over into Albania and Albania. And we we would pray that God would use that radio broadcast by a man called Sally Rachmani. I still remember his name. And that God would bless the gospel there. Fast forward 10 years, the late 90s, a young man comes to the church in Musselburgh on the east side of Edinburgh. He comes as an intern. He comes to learn under our pastor. Where is he today? He's been in Albania for 17 years planting churches. And God has used him mightily. And I am convinced that part of the reason he's there is the prayers of the old saints back in the 80s who never lived to see it, but God is doing his work. Don't underestimate the power of your prayers. Recognize the priority of it. You say, well, what are we meant to pray for? Well, just take the Lord's Prayer and spend time in it. Right? Take the six petitions and learn them off by heart and all this sudden there's no there's no there's nothing you will pray for i believe that's outside of the six petitions of the lord's prayer just as there's no sins you'll commit outside the ten commandments of the law of god i'm absolutely convinced that one of the best ways to disciple new converts is to teach them three basic statements that they can memorize you know what they are the law of god the apostles creed and the lord's prayer And if you end up in prison without a Bible, but you've memorized all of that, you have got a systematic theology in your mind. And you'll be okay. You'll be okay. The prayers become a priority for the church. They must be a priority for us. And so we see then, these are the the four uh, priorities that are identified for us in this text. But let's notice secondly then, uh, the, the attitude that we need to have towards these priorities. And it's there in the text very clearly as Luke is inspired by the Spirit to write it down. He doesn't say that whenever they could be bothered, they they, they did these things. Whenever it was convenient, they kind of thought, oh yeah, we should probably do this. Notice how he describes what's going on. They devoted themselves. I think the old King James says, they continued steadfastly in. I like that. They continued steadfastly in. 
Here is the attitude that we need to have towards these priorities in our life as the people of God. That the whole matter of sitting under the word of God, of fellowshipping together, of the Lord's Supper and the ordinances and of praying, they need to be such that we are continually steadfast in them. That they are at the very core of our being what we are committed to as the people of God. Brothers and sisters, I don't know about you, but I often, as a pastor, as a Christian, find myself not to be devoted to these things. Struggling to be devoted to these things. Tempted to be devoted to other things. But I want to encourage you this morning to see that the work of the Spirit in our hearts will, will, will cause us uh, to be a people who, at the very center of our life together as a church, give ourselves to these particular pursuits. The Spirit of God has converted many at this time. They've been cut regarding their guilt, regarding the Lord Jesus Christ. They have turned from their sins. They've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. They've been baptized. Now they're, they're gathering together. And what do they find? They find that in their heart there is, a, there is a desire to continually, steadfastly give themselves to these wonderful disciplines. Now what do I do when I find my heart's not there? And I find my heart can be not there. I ask the Lord to stir me up again. To help me again. It's not that I need to go looking for, well, what do I do? What should I be committed to as a church member? What really matters in the Christian church? It's here. It's in the word. We, we know what it is. God has told us what it is. The problem isn't the word. The problem isn't what the Lord has told us. The problem is my heart. The problem is my attitude. The problem is what I prioritize before these matters. I want to encourage you this morning to examine your attitude towards the means of grace. You see, if you want to know more of God, if you want to experience more of Christ, if you want to grow in your knowledge of the Lord, you've got to give yourself to what the Lord has ordained for that to happen. What the Lord has ordained for that to happen. See, you and I, just like in our Sunday school hour, we don't get to define certain things that God has ordained. We're responsible to receive what God has said. And then give ourselves to that by faith in Christ. And so when it comes to this issue of uh, these wonderful means of grace, as Richard Rogers lays them out for us, as the Westminster picks them up and our own confession states them, we need to see very clearly that we need to be devoted. We need to be committed. We need to have convictions about this. I think that we live in a day where there are really two kinds of Christianity in America. Convictional Christianity and convenient Christianity. And we want to be convictional Christians. We want to be those who have got true convictions about what does God's word teach and what does God require of us. That's what the catechism says, isn't it? That the Bible tells us what we are to believe about God and what duties God requires of us. And so as we think about it, even on the Lord's Day morning, we can get up and we're dull. We're tired. Pastors can be tired, you know. We're called to preach and we're called to get up and preach and we're called to get up and preach zealously the word of God, but we don't always feel like doing it. 
The reality is that we need the Spirit of God to enable us to do that. And so there are times I'll have to pray that. There are times I have to pray, Lord, I'm tired this morning. I'm weary this morning. I'm unbelieving this morning. Grant me grace to do what you've called me to do. There are times that a hymn is sung, and one Sunday I'll weep at the hymn. The other Sunday my heart is as hard as stone. It It doesn't affect me. Lord, soften my heart. Lord, give me a heart that wants to honor you. Lord, grant me grace to be devoted continually steadfast to that which you have ordained to reveal yourself to me and to transform me and to change me into the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know how many hours there are in a week? 168. My wife and I talk about that. She has exactly the same hours as I have. I have exactly the same hours as she has. And we have to figure out how we're going to divide them up. But you know what's very interesting? With 168 hours in the week, let's just imagine for a moment that you attend the Sunday school and the morning worship. So that's, let's just give it two and a half hours, right? And then let's consider, right, that you come back for the evening worship. And let's say it's another hour and a half. So, you know, we're up, we're up to about four hours, right? Think of the percentage of your time, that is, in the whole week, giving yourself to the corporate means of grace, the public means of grace. I know there are private means of grace. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the public means of grace. The reality is this. that you're about, If you were to give five and a half hours, that's including maybe an hour for prayer in the middle of the week, you know, how many, you know what the percentage is of your time that you're giving? 3.27%. I know we like statistics. Maybe some of you are accountants. You can correct me if my math is wrong, but I'm pretty sure that's the case. You see, why do I bring that to you? Here's why I bring that to you, because I I am persuaded that we live in a generation of minimalism. I'll do as little as I need to do just to get by. That's not convictional. That's not convictional. That's convenient. We want to be a people who have conviction. That's what the Lord asks us to gather on the Lord's day. He's wise. He's one day in seven. One day in seven. People ask us in our church, why do you have an evening worship? I say to them, because I believe in the Lord's day, not the Lord's hour. They laugh and they say, well, what does that mean? I say, well, I think there's historical precedent from the old covenant to the new covenant, morning worship, sacrifice, evening worship. I think that as the church has grown through the centuries, it was clear that the Lord's day was to be given as a perpetuity of the fourth commandment, etc., etc. And I know there's a lot of controversy about all of that, but here's the reality. Bookending our day with the worship of God enables us to be devoted, continually steadfast to these wonderful elements of the breaking of of the apostles' teaching, fellowship, and the breaking of bread and prayers. And so, brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you this morning that you will examine that, you will think about that, you will consider, well, what is my attitude? Is it just I'm here because I have to be, because if they don't, the pastor will give me a call, or my brother or my sister that I know will be on my case? I hope that's not the spirit. I hope the Spirit is you're here because the Spirit of God has put it in your heart to be here for the glory of God and for your own benefit and for the benefit of others. You know, one of the things that 
you're in a church for a long time, and Jim's been here longer than I've been in California, but one of the things you get to do is you can almost close your eyes and basically tell where your congregation is because they all sit in the same seats all the time. You know, we're creatures of habit, right? And your, your seats are rented. I know you are. I know there are some of you, you sit there every single Sunday. And I'm the same, right? My wife and I, when Eileen plays the piano in our church, and so when she's playing the piano, I'm always in uh, row three, seat two. That's my seat, right? Uh, when she's not playing the piano, then I'm in like row seven, seat one. Uh, I like to sit on the aisle, right? Uh, but, but when you're in the church, you can close your eyes and you can, you can see where people are. But we're not looking to see where you are because we want to be on your case. We're looking to see where you are because we want you to be enjoying God. And we want you to be serving the Lord. And we want you to be growing in grace. And so the reality is that your heart needs the Spirit of God in order for you to pursue these spirit-led priorities. Just as this happened in the early church. Luke describing it as the fact that these people, they were not complacent. They were not nonchalant. They were devoted. Continually steadfast. That means they continued to do it again and again and again and again. And brothers and sisters, that's church life. Church life is that we come again and again and again together to hear the word, to fellowship together, to have the ordinances of the Lord's Supper and to pray. Why? Because this is how God enables us to persevere in Christ all the way home. And that brings us to the last point I want us to look at. And that is, well, what's the benefit of all of this? What, what is uh, the point? This, these priorities that we need to have a right attitude towards Why? What's the benefit? Well, we come to verse 43, and I think Pastor Jim did a really good job in explaining why I asked him we could sing that hymn about as sweet and awful is the place. Boys and girls, it's not that church is bad or horrible or not nice. That's not what awful means in that hymn, as Jim has explained. No, it is that you come here to behold by faith through the ministry of the word and the work of the spirit, the glory and the wonder of almighty God. That's what it's all about. We are called here to marvel, marvel at the goodness of God as our creator and as our redeemer. We're called here to marvel at the wisdom of God, how he's put it all together naturally and supernaturally that we as creatures who are rebels against him might become his children and live for his glory. And he has manifested his power, not only in the creating of the world, but by his son in the recreating of humanity by the power of the gospel which saves us when we believe it. And brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you this morning to think about this. Awe came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. The goodness and the wisdom and the power of God was being manifest in the midst of the church as they gave themselves to these priorities of apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers, the people were awestruck. They were marveling at the wonders of the glorious God who in Jesus Christ had brought about the accomplishment of eternal redemption. 
Have you ever amazed at the purpose of God in Christ to save out of this old humanity that we're all born into under the fall, under the curse, to save out of it a new humanity that we might be brought to eternal glory. But that's where it's all headed, brothers and sisters. This is not the end. You have a beautiful building, by the way. I was saying to Jim, I love this place. Lovely, beautiful. Very different from our context in urban Sacramento. We have a nice building too, but yours is really nice. And uh, we are discussing painting the outside of our building. It's taken us 20 years to do it, but we're almost, we're almost about to pull the trigger. Uh, but the reality of it is, this is just a tent. And we're just a passing through. Now, praise God, you've got a nice tent. It's a lovely tent. And the Lord has blessed you with it, but it's still a tent. During COVID, we met outside for eight months. You can do that in California. That's why all the homeless people come to California, by the way. It's got nothing to do with politics. It's got nothing to do with the fact if I was a homeless person in Detroit, I'd be moving to California. Right? It's beautiful, the weather. You can, you can sit under a bridge in the middle of December and January in California with a sleeping bag, and you're not going to freeze to death. It'll be fine. But we met outside. One of our deacons has five acres of land, and I became a Scottish covenanter for seven months, preaching in the open air. Um, we met together, but we made these T-shirts. It was a bit of fun. The church has left the building. <laughs> right? I'm a Baptist, okay? So, so our people, we, we said to them, hey, it's good to wear this, because we want people to understand. The building, we bless God for. We thank God for it. And we, we, we're thankful for our air conditioning and all of that. But it's just a tent. We're passing through. We're going to eternal glory. And this is what we must understand when we, we think of what we're doing when we come to worship. We come to worship the, 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 the triune God in this beautiful building, recognizing, however, this is not the end game. The end game is the return of our Savior in all his glory to bring us all a new humanity into the new heavens and the new earth where, uh, where righteousness shall dwell forever. I wonder if you're like Jonathan Edwards. I would like to be like him in some ways. And in this way, I would like to be like him. That eternity would really be stamped on my eyeballs. See, I like my life a lot. I love my California life. And I sometimes wonder, do I really want to leave and go to glory? Now, there's a tension, of course. There's a natural element. I don't want to leave my wife. I want to be married for another 40 years and all of that. But... Are we really living our here and now for the there and then? That's the challenge. I know I don't do it as I ought to do it. I don't do it as I should do it. But brothers and sisters, if God truly fills our hearts and minds when we gather in these temporal tents, then we will be, get, we be prepared for that which is yet to come when he appears in all his glory. And it's vitally important that we understand that these means of grace, these priorities, they are designed by the all-wise God to cultivate in us awe, wonder, bewilderment at the, the love of the Father for the Son and the love of the Son for us and the work of the Spirit that brings us to the Son and, and, and the mediation of the Son that brings us to the Father and, and, and that God fills our minds and our hearts in every aspect of our life so that when we go out from this place, we're filled with the knowledge of God and the wonder of God and the glory of God. To what end? Well, notice what the end of the passage says. 
And this is not an absolute, of course, it was a historical moment, but it's an encouragement. Praising God, they had favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. You see, we can think sometimes, can't we, that we need all these evangelistic programs and we need all these different programs because that's how we're going to win people to Jesus. I tell you this, whilst I'm not against certain evangelistic efforts, we're doing that ourselves in California, the, the heart of it, the core of church life, the priorities of the life of the church are a steadfast devotion, commitment to the means of grace that we in our hearts might behold the glory and the wonder and the majesty of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ and that when our hearts are filled with that our lives will overflow into our community. Will overflow. And so I encourage you this morning, my dear brothers, my dear sisters, stay the course with spiritual priorities. Do not be drawn to the right. Do not be drawn to the left. Do not be sucked into the spirit of the age. But keep the main things the main thing. And in keeping the main things the main thing, you will enjoy God. And God will fill your lives. And your lives will tell for God. For the glory of his name and the furtherance of his cause. May God help us in these days, you here in Louisville, us in Sacramento, and the Church of Christ Universal, to prioritize that which the Spirit prioritized at the very beginning of the New Covenant community, that we would be devoted, steadfastly committed to the Apostles' doctrine and to fellowship and to breaking of bread and to prayers, that we would be filled with awe the wonder and the glory of our blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty God, we acknowledge that you alone are the only God, the true and the living one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we bless you for the work of your Spirit who has made us alive to you. We bless you for the work of the Spirit who has inspired your word that we might have it even in our own language to read it, to understand it, to believe it, and to put it into practice. We pray, Father, that as your people in this day in which we live, that we would be a people whose priorities are led by the Spirit, shaped by the word of God, that we would not be drawn away into all manner of uh, distractions, but that we would keep that which is central, central for the glory of your name and for the benefit of our souls and even for the salvation of our society. We recognize, our Father, there are many temptations, there are many challenges, and yet we rejoice this morning in the simplicity of your word, even in the profundity of what it teaches us. Lord, may your blessing abide upon your people. May you continue to build your church here, May you be glorified even in the lives of all who believe in sincerity in Jesus Christ. For we ask in his name. Amen. Amen.